Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. This is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 502 for December 31st, 2022. Welcome back. Uh, yeah, and Happy New Year, right? We're standing yeah, boy. New Year's Eve now. Uh, both you and I have had some real tough uh, news this year. Your mom passed away a few months ago, and my mom passed away this week, so we've been dealing with that. Um, we appreciate your thoughts and prayers uh, coming our way, both of us, really. It, you know, you don't... The grief doesn't go away just after a week or two, you know? It, no, it's it's not like a guest at a hotel that's there for a finite time and checks out. I mean, really. No, it comes to live with you for a bit. <laughs> Oh, yeah. It is. Well, it's like my ADHD. I tell people it's the house guest that moves in and never moves out. Yeah. Well, and this week we're talking to Thomas Lecac about theocracy in the USA. He traces the roots of um, kind of zealous nationalism, to borrow a phrase from Robert Jewett, um, back to the Crusades and how this same, you know, thought structure uh, emerges time and time again down through the centuries. And, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a, it's, it is a phenomenon that that's a yeah. recurring phenomenon, you know? Yeah. 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 We've got this, uh, yeah, and you like to say that it's like a chronic disease that can become acute, yeah, like a viral, like a viral infection. Yeah. It, yeah it's dormant and then it goes active, or, you know, in, in a cyclical kind of way. Well, cyclical and also, uh, you know, there are forces that have all the money and the, uh, you know, spot the TV channels and the newspapers, or at least they have the predominant one of them. They're, they push that stuff constantly and keep agitating until people go along with it. And there's nothing like that on the left fight them. You know, it's just a bunch of uh, real tiny mom and pop operations that uh, really don't come into everybody's um, living room every night and we would point out to to, to to the listeners that there are people this is it's very cynical because people do make money and they gain power off this right oh yeah 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 that's the the they're manipulating the the people in their thrall to uh uh their minions uh so they'll be able to uh rule over the rest of us they don't care about theocracy or anything else they're just using it for power but he traces right. this back to the Crusades, which I think is very impressive. So we'll be looking forward to our chat with him in a moment. But first, this week in Louisiana history. So this week in Louisiana history, one of our last Spanish governors uh, takes control. Uh, December 30th, 1791, Governor Carondelet takes control of Louisiana. And he is one of the last. You know, there weren't but, what, one or two more after him, maybe? Yeah, we're getting close to the American era and the arrival of uh, Claiborne. Well, you know this. This is when uh, some of the early some of the early settlers began to come here into the Pine Hills country here in North Louisiana, like mm -hmm. the guy that settled um, uh, Vienna, uh, that Honeycutt, and, and Dr. Ingram, our professor of tech, did a wrote an article about or wrote an article where he mentioned that guy years ago. But uh, that fellow Honeycutt came down from t Tennessee around 1795, so it was during the Carondelet period of, of, of governor, uh, you know, his t his tenure. 
I think it's also when the uh, pipes moved in, like, um, you know, Father Abraham and that bunch. Of, they yeah. Were, they're pretty yeah, the, the, exactly. It's the tail end of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we'll be uh, looking. F uh, well, no. <laughs> Sorry. On the wrong part. Now for this week in New Orleans history, the last Sugar Bowl was played in Tulane Stadium on December 31st, 1974. Because after that, they moved to the Superdome, I believe. Yes. Um, so New Orleans uh, items. Sports thank you. Thank Fred, you, Governor. Uh, Governor McKithen. Fred Digby popularized the term Sugar Bowl in 1927. Which, you know, it's kind of catchy. There is an actual, most houses have a sugar bowl, don't they? Um, <laughs> the first sugar bowl was played there on January 1st, 1935 against the Philadelphia Temple Owls. All right. Now for this week in Louisiana. So this week in Louisiana, we highlight the New Orleans New Year's Eve festival or New Year's Eve uh, celebration. New Orleans is the perfect place to bring in the new year, whether you whether you want to grab dinner and turn in for the night or, or turn in for the night early, celebrate at a children's event during the day, or party all night long. We've got something for everyone. Here's how to celebrate new, new Year's Eve in New Orleans. For the biggest party in the city, head to Jackson Square, where the quarter is packed with festive partygoers eager to count down the time until the new year arrives with the Fleur de Lis drop. If outdoor celebrations and big crowds aren't for you, make a reservation at one of the city's many fine restaurants and celebrate the evening over delectable meals and, of course, lots of bubbly. Many restaurants offer special deals or packages for the evening, so make sure you check ahead to ensure the perfect night for you, your loved ones, and friends. See here for our list of restaurants open for New Year's Eve. We do have a website. Is there a phone number, too, that people can call, or do you, do you know? I don't see one, but maybe you could find one on their website. I'd suggest maybe look there. Uh, and we do have a link to the website. Uh, now for this week's postcard from Louisiana, I listened to the Hobo Gadget Junk Band playing on Frenchman Street.
Junk band. Great. And do y'all have a website or a... Uh, Instagram. Instagram. Okay, look you up on... Yeah, we have a oh, band camp. Okay. Hey, yo, dude. Hey, guitar, oh. guitar guy. Do you have a high E that I could buy off you by any chance? I don't. These are, these are basses. Uh, 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 have a good night. I, I looked her up. Oh, there she is. I, what do y'all think? That's the, I know her. People have already told her told this. <laughs> yeah, I never thought about it's that. It's actually a, a compliment. It's the curly hair. That's all it is. Probably the, the round face. <laughs> yeah. The round face well, and the curly hair. Yeah, 12 years ago, I guess they got started and, you know, should have been about your age then. I, I've seen a lot of videos of her playing. Just a cornet, but yeah. Uh, yeah. sings a lot too. And, and violin. Really Shane Cohen. Great jazz name. I haven't met her yet. Well, keep an eye out. You'll see him out there one night. Or maybe in DBA one night. I really sing on Royal in front of Rouse's. Really. So, that's going to replace it. You know Barnabas and Robin? I don't. Barnabas is a trombone player. Robin is a walking player. They both walk on the great stage inside the room. Yeah, maybe it's that. I'll see you guys. Have a good night. Yeah, have a good night. Have a good night. Have a good night. Have a good night. Now on to our interview with Thomas Lecac. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And uh, we're here today with uh, Thomas Lecac. Well, did I get your name right? You did. Perfectly. Good luck getting people to pronounce that mud in Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've accepted that uh, Louisiana pronunciations of French words are going to be what they are and to smile and go on with it. So uh, we're here to talk about your work studying uh, the rise. Of, I guess it's always been around, but it seems to be getting worse. The rise of theocracy in uh, the United States. Yes, uh, a topic that keeps being relevant in the worst possible ways. I know, right? <laughs> and, um, 
uh, have you written any books that our readers might be interested in or uh, papers? Well, uh, books, uh, my first one will hopefully be out next year. I'm finishing up uh, edits. But I, originally, I, I'm a crusade historian by training. So the book that I'm working on is a biography of the first crusade leader. And it was actually that background that, that led me to start writing about um, Christian nationalism and apocalyptic rhetoric and religious violence in the contemporary sphere because, uh, you know, I started reading the news and started noticing things that felt similar to my academic research, which is always terrible when you're a crusade right. historian. <laughs> no one is ever excited about being able to make links between the crusades and contemporary life. This is a bad time. Um, and I, I started writing be foreigners it's an hbo series Ooh, i have not seen it yet it's um it was made in uh sweden i guess and um it's partially dubbed it's really great but uh one of the characters in the show was the uh, saint king who first introduced christianity to uh norway and then he got flash uh fast uh, forwarded to time to some kind of weird time travel stuff and now he's leading a semi-nazi movie a <laughs> movement um and it seems like there's some real like links between the two oh absolutely um in in ways that are really 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 kind of terrifying um and that's, that's well, the, the, the ideology is virtually identical right i mean in terms of the, the authoritarianism and all that you know, the yeah i mean it's a model of, of organizing a political movement out of society is all the same. Yes, very little ends up changing uh, in, in ways that I think are really kind of horrifying but also fascinating that for all we've become very modern and all the technology we have, the ideologies don't shift that quickly. Right. It's just married to the modern economic and really propaganda systems uh, that we have. For uh, the other days, you had to send a note around to all the priests um, they can just get up on, uh, you know, Fox News every night and uh, spew your stuff. Although the preachers still do love to spread the propaganda, don't they? <laughs> oh, they absolutely <laughs> do. But that, they're doing it through so many uh, new ways because it's not just in church on a Sunday morning. It's also on TikTok. It's on Twitter. It's on, yeah. I mean, if they go into Gab and Getter and all of these other sites, it's on every possible media. So all of the bad messages spread much more quickly and much more directly. And there's so, there's less filter. Right. You can you can spread hate directly. One person with, you know, a camera phone can can reach millions. Right. Right. You know, the the, the barriers, if you if you're middle class or, you know, uh, well enough off to afford a smartphone and a decent data plan, you can, um, you know, you can put this stuff online. Yeah. 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 Well, and it, it's funny. I mean, it. it used to be very textually based, right? Even online, it was very textually based until very recently. And the fact that social media has moved so heavily towards kind of um, video format, especially like short form video format. I'm really thinking like TikTok and the fact that every other company seems to be imitating TikTok with like Instagram reels and things like that. You can do these short, catchy uh, videos that can spread a lot of things really quickly. But like some of these things are really horrifying. So uh, before we get too far into the subject, I wanted to get your Louisiana connection. Uh, uh, did you mention that you had uh, been to Tulane? Yes, I was a student at Tulane from 2003 to 2005 uh, and ended up leaving after Katrina. Right, right. And what was your major? Uh, well, I started as a theater major, um, which I loved. I absolutely loved. 
Um, I remember the plays. I was in there very, very fondly. Um, and then after giving, uh, giving the talk, the very important talk of we cannot guarantee you'll get a job on stage because every, every talented, you know, actor in, uh, in New York City is, is a waiter, uh, and then random people get, you know, get the shot. They gave us that talk, and I thought, well, I, all I really want to do is be on stage. So I switched majors. I was an anthropology major briefly, and then um, fell in love with the history classes I was taking and stuck with history ever since. Ah, uh, yeah. Now, were you from Louisiana originally? How did you wind up in Tulane? Um, I'm, I grew up in northeast Missouri. Both my parents are college professors, and uh, I, uh, all I wanted to do was get out of my home when I was applying to college. Um, Tulane was actually the closest school I applied to, a 15-hour drive from my house, and it was the first school I visited after I'd gotten acceptance letters, and I, I had other places that we were planning on visiting afterwards, but I was, <clears throat> I was on Tulane's campus for maybe 15 minutes before I told my, my mom to cancel, cancel our trips elsewhere. It, some that people think you're in the French Quarter, so uh, mm, well, <laughs> a powerful we're not, draw to the school. Yeah, we're not going to talk about my freshman year GPA. That that has much to do with my love of the French Quarter and uh, of the now non-existent bar Friar Tucks uh, south of Tulane. But for me, for me, it was you know that first day, that first day under the live oaks. I, I knew I knew that that I was in love with Tulane and wanted to go there. Oh my God, yeah. Um, well, I was. Um, a student in New Orleans myself, so um, <laughs> now I'm, I'm much older than you. So, um, but yeah, um, it, people have one of two reactions to New Orleans. Either it's like a powerful magnet, and some people are attracted, and some people are repelled. But I was always attracted by it. Um, oh, me too. Uh, I, I was back in January for the American Historical Association conference, and. You know, you, you get off the you get off the plane and it's it's still magical. Every single moment in New Orleans is still magical. What where where exactly are you from in, in northeast Missouri? Uh, is uh, it up near? It's not Hannibal, I'm sure. Uh. No, it's uh, it's inland from that. It's uh, Kirksville, Missouri. My parents uh, were professors at Truman State University, which is where I ended up after Katrina. Uh, finished my undergrad there and did my uh, master's degree there. So is that? Uh, uh, this is a piece of trivia here you may or may not be aware of. Is that near La Plata? Is it La Plata or La Plata? Oh, my gosh. Yes, it's near La Plata. It is 15 minutes. You know minutes why I'm asking this. You know uh, it, 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 this. Does the rail line go up from Ruston to La Plata? No. Uh, this is a connection. Maybe. There is no, none Bruce, of Bruce, Bruce knows this. This is a connection to Doc Savage, the legendary pulp adventurer and one, one of the forerunners to Superman. And he was from either La Plata or Kirksville, one of the two. Oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> really. Yeah. There's a bridge ah. up there named for him. It's the Lester Dent Bridge. I'm a member of a couple of Doc Savage groups online, and I know the guy that has written a lot of the modern Doc Savage. These are their, their retro stories, but he wrote wrote them in the the 1990s and 2000s, and we're oh, he and our old friends back to the early 80s. You and, have uh, no idea how exciting this is to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I know that I know that bridge. <laughs> I'm I'm from Kirksville. I mean, this is this is where I grew up. So this is yeah, uh, <laughs> the, this is yeah, Lester Dent country, man. It's, uh, oh, I have a north south train through town. I mean, a east west, but they took out the tracks for the old north south train, so uh, you can't hop a train to Missouri anymore. Yeah, yeah, it probably ran into Missouri someplace. It ran through our my grandparents' property, the old Illinois Central. 
and ran into somewhere in Missouri. I'm not sure exactly where, but I know it ran north. Oh, man. So. <laughs> I'm so happy right now. That's just ah, excellent. So I had a theoretical, like, you know, in English we do, like, what they call theory, you know, like, what is your perspective when you approach a topic? Um, and I suppose they have that to some degree in history as well. And I was wondering if you had heard of Robert Jewett in your research. Robert Jewett. The name sounds familiar, and I'm trying to think he, why. Is he a theologian? Am I, am I correct in remembering that he's a theologian? Yeah. And he's written a series of books. He's uh, designated the stuff you're studying as the American monomyth, which is a, a mm. pastoral paradise is under threat, and a hero emerges to restore order and then to ride off into the sunset. And it's the theme of every Western there ever was, but also Batman, also Doc Savage, you know, and mm. all everywhere. And so, it's a version of the great man theory of history. That's it's yeah. his version of it, basically. Well, and also the Messiah complex. Yes, yes. I alone can fix it. And he just plugs into this existing thought um, structure that these people have grown up with because it emerges from what he sees as a, um, a, uh, a heretical kind of Christianity. Uh, the mm. violent redeemer myth, where you know the actual redeemer, for some reason was called the Prince of Peace. Yeah, but, <laughs> <laughs> the Lord of War in our mythology. You know, beware the lamb with the sword in his mouth, and it's all about apocalyptic imagery and um, yeah. violence, revelation, and all that stuff. Violence, exploitation, you know, brutality, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, which has which has very early medieval route, uh, roots and kind of the way the uh, the text gets translated to turn Jesus into this heroic, like warrior figure, um, taking kind of the harrowing of hell legend and expanding it back and making kind of the crucifixion itself a heroic moment of like leaping onto the cross. There's the dream of the root where it's told from the perspective of the cross, and it it brings in this kind of battle imagery against death and against Satan that makes it this kind of ultra masculine, yeah, violent you, image. Uh, Dream of the Rude in Anglo-Saxon, or I prefer to read it in a translation. Um, <laughs> it describes Jesus as, in his disciples, as warriors, because they didn't yeah. know how to place them. And they didn't have that developed economy of the heights of the Roman Empire, where you had tax collectors and zealots and fishermen. And well, and it's an ancient idea, even prior to that, if you go back and look at you know, the, the myths and legends of the ancient Near East prior to, you know, the Hebrew uh, people coming into into that area, uh, their view of God is a warrior God, right? I mean, this is why you get that view of God in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, because they are, they are the, the, at least the spiritual ancestors of, or the descendants of, I should say, those, you know, old Canaanites. Who yeah, you know what? yeah, their yeah. God, El, was, was a warrior. Yeah, you yeah, know for your God and uh, kept having the devil of the time stop getting to stop worshiping their, um, you know, their uh, wheat gods and uh, olive gods because they needed their olives to grow and their wheat to grow. And why is this guy so grumpy? Um, <laughs> it's always been kind of part of it. It's a violent religion. 
Um, yeah, well, I think about the kind of other the other faiths that uh, Christianity competes with in the Roman Empire, and kind of the uh, the cult of Mithras, who is very much this sun god, this this warrior god figure. The fact that kind of your Greco-Roman deities have these very militant aspects that are kind of a huge part of the mythology around them. Um, you know, the idea of warrior gods is so common in so many of the contexts from which. Christianity as a as a Roman religion and then onwards develops that it, it actually it, it's it's more normal for it to be this kind of violent faith. The Romans adopted Christianity because it had become endemic to their military, and when the guys with swords say become a Christian, there's certain power to it, right? Yeah. Well, and so much so much of the early rhetoric. I mean, it. it it's easy to build a rhetoric of militarism when you use that as kind of your concept of masculinity and sacrifice and, you know, tones of nobility and kingship uh, gets connected with this kind of violent rhetoric. And so you, you spread this into all aspects. Um, and for me, it, this go, is one of the things I always find... It goes with a pyramidal society or a hierarchical society, too, which mm. is what Rome was. Yeah. Very I mean, look so. at all the memes. And I, and of, I think that that's sociologically, we had a guy, and, and I, truth in advertising, the listeners know this, you don't, but Bruce and our old seminary alums, he went to New Orleans and I went to Harvard Divinity. Okay, gotcha. So, yeah, so, in fact, one of our guys at Harvard was actually, I think he was like the the star pupil of Rudolf Bultmann, maybe, but it was uh, Helmut Kester. It was either, I think it was Dr. Kester, but anyway, one of the New Testament faculty had an area that was really kind of esoteric. His area, I think it was Kester, his area was the sociology of the New Testament world. Mm. So he looked at the structures and how they organized, but how then that affected the society, but how in turn society interacted with those structures. If that makes yeah. sense. And so, so, yeah, he would have been very interested in this kind of thing that we're talking about right now. He would have been deeply interested in it. Yeah. Well, and so much of it, I mean, one of the things I always find fascinating when people talk about the apocalypse is that, I mean, as, as you mentioned, everyone ignores the fact that the Prince of Peace who descends at the end. Everyone wants to focus on the um, persecution, the violence leading up to that point. Uh, and I think that it has so much less to do with, um, you know, the actual religion so much as people want their enemies to be oppressed. And they get really excited about that part. Oh, yeah. And the, the, the judgment, they always assume that after that, the judgment will fall on other people until you get a second round of oppression. They never um, and I think that's, a, that's a huge part of the general apocalypticism that, that has existed throughout Christianity, is that it is always about being excited about other people's persecution as opposed to the end of suffering. That lines up with comedy, uh, particularly film comedy, but an area more this, with Bruce's line, like classical comedy, where when someone suffers a mishap, particularly in slapstick, you know, they, they slip on a banana peel or they, you know, go through a door and something falls on their head and they get like a bucket and they get drenched. And there's this <laughs> idea that, oh, it, it's funny because of the, you know, the shock or surprise, but it's also funny because it's happening to somebody else and not to you and me, right? Yeah. Wasn't it Tertullian who said that one of the greatest joys of heaven would be to watch the torments of people in hell? <laughs> 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 Uh, you know, I'd love to. I'd love to give uh, contemporary Christian nationalist credit for Noah Dutchpolian, but no, uh, they seem to have recreated that concept. Yeah. Oh well, I mean, owning the libs is half the point of Donald Trump, right? 
Um, yes, at least half. Almost nothing that he promised would actually improve the lives of his constituency. And, uh, but what it does do is allow them to see kids in cages and derive the joy that they get from that and watching all those people die from a hoax, you know. And, uh, yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's just a very... Which I, lines up with fascism. That's one of the tenets of fascism, the need for and the promise of punishing one's perceived enemies. I mean, that lines up with classical fascism. You need to place your boot in someone's face. Um, and um, oh, But also they're super snowflakes when it comes to their own suffering, you know, like... Oh, absolutely. If one of them loses a job because he... Uh, you know, got caught at the Capitol on January 6th. They're trying to cancel me, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it, it's it's always interesting that um, they're so excited to persecute other people, and then it's immediately when there are any consequences of persecution for them. And I, I'd love, to, you know, I'd love to think that it was just magically Donald Trump doing this, but it's not. This is this has been true forever. Yeah. Kind of the worst yeah. ways. Um, no, no, I mean, bring, no, bring it back to... 15. He tapped into something that had been there. I don't know. I, I, I've traced it back myself to um, the communist witch hunts of the 50s, um, mm. before the modern rise of that kind of Republican was. Um, and it probably goes back further. I'm just not aware of it. Yeah, yeah Bruce, yeah. Bruce and I keep harping on this, and my theory is that it's, it's like a viral infection. And the thing mm. goes, it, it, it is dormant. Most of the time, like like the herpes virus that most of us carry, that you know, uh, involves eruptions on the lips, like a like a fever blister or something like that. Yeah. Herpes simplex two or whatever it is. But anyway, the thing is dormant most of the time. But if you let the body get stressed out, you let the immune system get compromised, then the then the infection or the virus is going to become active again instead of dormant, and you're going to have some consequences as as a you know, in, in the end. And this. White nationalism, this Christo-fascism, it's the same way. If there's any sort of societal change, an economic or social crisis or anything like that, a, a threat to the body, so to speak, then, it, then the infection is going to become active once again, or the virus yeah. becomes active once again. And it spreads. Absolutely. It spreads. Yeah. upset them quite as much as seeing a black man in the White House. I think that was um, when it suddenly became okay to be openly racist again. Um and, you know, people, I'm from the South, <laughs> the deep South, and I've heard people talking like that all my life in living rooms. But suddenly you've got Barack Obama, and then along comes Facebook, and the stuff that they were oh, saying yeah. in the living room, they can now say online. Yep, absolutely. Well, and, it, you know, it, it's funny thinking about, about how far back you can push it. Uh, I think we should push it back into Louisiana history into the 19th century and the, uh, the contested uh, 1872 election for governor of Louisiana when uh, John McInerney, uh contested the, the election after um, Republican William Kellogg was certified. Right. Uh, they contested the election. Uh, the lieutenant governor, the black Republican um, Pinchback was briefly uh, governor for the last uh, 35 days of the previous governor's tenure because that governor was impeaching me for stealing the election. Uh, and after, uh, after the, the election was certified in Kellogg's favor, um, the White League, 
formed a 5,000-man armed militia to enter New Orleans and seize the State House. Uh, that, mm-hmm. that's, that's the Battle of Liberty place. So, I mean, this yeah. is the kind of stuff that, that you know, I, I, I think about things like this, that we've had the attempt to uh, overthrow a democratically elected government uh, with claims of electoral fraud and armed militia occupying a State House to put in their uh, favored uh, racist candidate. There's something about right-wing violence, white supremacist violence, that's mm-hmm. not seen as a threat. Um, our friend C.J. Hunt did a documentary about, um, it's called The Neutral Ground, but it's about the taking down of the monuments, the Confederate monuments. Oh, excellent. At a Confederate parade through the middle of all that, and uh, C.J. was out there reporting it on it. <laughs> The New Orleans police are chilling real hard because um, <laughs> they won't do anything about a Confederate. Uh, if yeah, it had been Black yeah. Lives Matter, you know, out come yep. the uh, batons and the warrior cop outfit and yep. rads and all the other stuff. But going back all this time when right-wingers revolt, it's just kind of, okay, That's and, and then when it's over, it's over. They don't. Uh, or they hardly ever persecute them and rarely hold them accountable, even, I mean, prosecute them, and rarely are able to hold them accountable even when they do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it, it, it's kind of horrifying that uh, it feels like progress that some of the people who stormed the Capitol are actually uh, being arrested and actually being charged and actually being right. The fact that that feels like a triumph is a really horrific indictment of how how we've allowed things to exist. But... This, I mean, this is the history of the United States, right? We decide to pardon Confederate leaders uh, of their sedition um, in hopes yeah. that it will fix things. And what it leads is to is an armed, uh, an armed guerrilla campaign against the U.S. government until uh, Grant sends in the army. It mm-hmm. gives them a feeling of impunity and emboldens them to act, lash out even more. And that's what we're going through now, especially when you have a fascist like Trump in power. Yeah, well, and, and he, he, emboldens, he emboldens other more organized fascists to believe that their time has come again. Because the, the thing about Trump is that Trump is a fascist, but he's, he's effectively an accidental fascist. He doesn't believe in rules that stop him. <laughs> yeah, he, has no, he has no ideology. He's not disciplined. He's, not, he's, he's incredibly lazy. He's he doesn't believe in rules. Yeah, he makes George W. Bush look like, look like an intellectual, or even Dan Taylor look like an intellectual. I mean, really. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and he, he's incurious, uh, which, which really emphasizes that, and he is malicious, but he's also completely self-absorbed, which unfortunately makes him um, both more and less dangerous because he doesn't believe in consequences because it never occurs to him, but he's also doesn't have a plan. He just does the things that will benefit him. And that is the one saving grace is that he's not more organized than he is. Well, I mean, do you remember um, uh, Occupy Wall Street back in 2011? Yes. And uh, it it was this great wave of uprising of uh, people who, we are the 99%, we're being, the overlords are the 1%. Uh, we've got to take some of that power back and some of the economic, you know, some of the money and all this other stuff. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, came a night and just magically all over the country, police departments did roll out the airwads and uh, invaded the parks that were being occupied and threw everybody out. 
all at once. They were very mysterious. How did this happen? Mm-hmm. How did this according? Well, it was Obama mm-hmm. who was he was super hyper um, organized, right? Yeah. Um, if you had, but Trump, he could have done that if he'd had the organizational skills with Black Lives Matter. But I think he liked the spectacle. He wanted to see the the burning cars so that he could say on TV, "Hey, they're burning cars. You gotta, you know, I gotta." Well, the whole, that whole uh, big photo op that he staged in front of the Episcopal Church in in, in uh, D.C.—that's the yep. mask of this whole thing. And held the Bible upside down. Why don't you talk about that in terms of your Christo-fascism that you've been... <laughs> seems to be the crystallization of the whole movement, that moment. Hmm. I mean, the thing about Trump is that Trump is at... I think at best, Trump is the useful idiot. But Trump is... What people who supported Trump were after was the twofold um, promoting of people who would actively promote Christian nationalist ideas and also someone who would hurt the people they wanted to hurt. Right. Um, I really, the, the kind of first piece of writing I did, public-facing writing I did, was about the idea of uh, Trump as, as this last world emperor figure, this apocalyptic legend from the Middle Ages of a secular militant figure who would reunite the Roman Empire and would lead um, effectively a holy war against Islam, reclaim Jerusalem, and then put down his crown and scepter, and Jesus would descend and would arrive in the kingdom of heaven. But this kind of flawed, secular, imperial figure who would do the right thing in spite of all of their flaws. And that's, and that's the hope, right? Trump is very clearly a flawed figure, and they love him for that anyway, because of the things that he does for them. And that is really Supreme Court justices. That is, I mean, it, it's the, the people who were so excited about the overturning of Roe v. Wade, think that this is the culmination of what Trump gave to them. And, and it is, but it, it is have been but. a disaster for the church as well as for the Republican Party. People are leaving the church in droves. They're just sickened by anybody with a spark of decency seeing all I mean, these parade around. <laughs> well, it winds up being like any authoritarian state, too. And here it's, you know, fascism versus, you know, some kind of leftist or Stalinist authoritarianism, but what you've got here is that any state like that always turns on its own. Yes. It always turns on its own, which means that it's going to turn around and bite them in the rear end before it's over with. And they don't think yeah. about it. You know, all they think about is this short-term sort of, you know, punish our enemies and we're not going to let those libs get a hold of us. You know, and they do all the quick yeah. voice and all the nonsense. But it always turns around to bite them. Always. I mean, history. Every knows. MAGA who loses a Republican primary to another very right wing Republican now refuses to concede. It, it was uh, Laura, Laura Loomer uh, in Florida right now is, is still on this kick. Yes. Yeah. And they uh, refuse to accept any outcome that, um, you know, their God didn't. Uh, <laughs> tell them beforehand what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the thing is, is that so much of the point of many of these groups seems to be the idea of punishment and suffering and not a kind of constructive what we will get out of this so much as who will be punished. I, um, I have a piece coming out on Monday, uh, Monday, which I, I don't know when this, this is going to come out, but Monday the 29th for the 17th anniversary of Katrina that talks a little bit about um, why I write effectively. And, and the genesis of why I write the pieces I do is after Katrina, I kept a list 
it's not a comprehensive list, but, it, but it, it's a list of the various preachers and pastors who blamed New Orleans and the sin, the nebulous sin of which of the flavors you want to go with, for why Hurricane Katrina happened. Exactly. Yes, I am. From, I didn't keep a list, but oh, I mean, my, my my hate fires, my hate fires are pure and they are enduring and they will never fail. I mean, Pat Robertson, Franklin Graham, John Haji, uh, Rick Joyner, Bill Shanks, Jennifer Giro, Gerhard Wagner, John McTernan, Hal Lindsey, Charles Colson, Michael McCavage, Rick Scarborough, Fred oh, yeah. Phelps. Oh, I have a. Oh I my guess. God, he was over here. No, I'm thinking. I'm sorry. I'm thinking about Fred Lowry. He's another loser over here. He was at FBC Bozier and a real white winger, just a hard mm. winger. Mm. Yeah. These people are still at it, right? I mean, this is the thing. These people, none of them have died yet, and they're still at it. They're still spreading this hate and invective. Uh, some of them have really tapped into the uh, into the Trump era. John Haji, especially, really got all in on Trump, um, especially for moving the uh, the theoretical moving of the embassy to Jerusalem. Well, the um, the <coughs> The response to Katrina by the Bush administration was so inept and so crippled his presidency that really the, the only effective response they had was to uh, break out the Karl Rove political machine and um, start spinning it with the black Democrats in New Orleans' fault. And there was a representative from Baton Rouge at the time, very powerful. In oh, Woody Jenkins? No, no, in Washington, D.C. Um, oh, okay. And uh, he got up on TV and said, oh, we've been trying to clean out New Orleans for years, and now God's done it for us. Oh, man. He was sitting in the house at the time, you know, not just a preacher, but using that rhetoric, right? My God. Yeah, I mean, I, I again, I, I wish I was ever surprised, but I, I never am. I mean, it, it, there is... There is no bottom to the level of kind of violence of the rhetoric, um, and just it never it never goes away. No, no. And for a while, it was a little more like the people that still like abortion. The people that get on TV have enough media training and have been polished enough. That they're going to say, oh, we're for babies and empowering women. We really want women to have the power to have those babies, you know, and, mm. you know, the masters of the slimy rhetoric of the right. But you talk to any person, you know, regular Joe, and it's usually a guy, but not always, on the uh, Internet and interrogate them for two or three minutes. And, well, those women should keep their legs shut. You know, they were, they've made their choice. They've just got to live with it. You know, and they see babies as a punishment from God for the sin of having sex. Um, and when you tell them that, they just get all huffy. It's <laughs> very yeah, happy well, about, you, about you who's shortening their own words at them. They're trapping <laughs> in fear, you know. Yeah. Uh, right in the face of, you know, Jesus' warning, you know, fear not, and which is one of the most common commands in all of the New Testament, fear not. Fear not, fear not. I mean, he keeps on hammering it, hammering this home to those apostles and the disciples. Uh, evidently, it doesn't take with a lot of people, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, I think I, I think mean, it, it's the tracking of it's the tracking of fear, but it, it, the it's always backed up by the threat of violence, right? 
it seems like the anti-abortion stuff is also part of this theocracy. And this is the tip of the uh, spear. They also want to go after um, birth control. All the Republicans voted against uh, making birth control a right. Uh, mm-hmm. They're against, of course, gay marriage, but also uh, probably interracial marriage. They want to yeah. overturn Loving v. Virginia. That's the big uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and they set it up for all of it. You know, yes. They're vicious. So talk a bit about sexuality and the theocrats. Yeah, and I mean, this is this is a big part of it, right? And this has this has long been a big part of it. And I think that there is this, this moment, right around the election of Obama, right? There's this moment of hope. I mean, this is, this is why the audacity of hope is such a great book title, where people very much believe Right, uh, marriage equality gets passed. We actually feel like there's real shift change. The problem is that all of the the, the kind of violence and the hatred just goes underground. It doesn't actually disappear. Um, the wave of you mean the anti- Kenyan usurper? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's just it's so it's it's a bottomless well of hate, right? And the thing about um, for me, is that the, the LGBTQIA plus community has always been oppressed. Right. And the idea that if you allow them to live, you are somehow threatening you know, conservative Christian identity by simply allowing people to exist, I, I think we should call, call it out for what it is. The anti-trans legislation is designed to convince transgender individuals to kill themselves. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. That's the bully. Very explicitly. It is designed to get them to kill themselves and to eliminate them. It is genocidal in its intention. And the goal is then to spread that elsewhere in a very eliminatory kind of way. Um, and I think, I think it's, just, it's really important to just call it out. You know, the, the fascist marches that were happening during Pride Month, um, the Kirtaline, the Kirtaline um, group, that uh, Patriot Front that was stopped, I mean, good that they were stopped, but it was just one of a number of kind of fascist groups that were marching on um, kind of pride uh, events all over the place. Um, there were a number of things in Dallas that were attacked by Christian fascists and, and elsewhere. There's the, um, oh, what's his name? There's um, a Texas church, uh, I think it's Steadfast Baptist, where the preacher keeps talking about how the, go- the government should execute gay people. Um, and again, nothing has changed. This is the same rhetoric that was applied to New Orleans saying that God sent Hurricane Katrina because of Southern decadence. Right. Yeah. I, I, I forget and forget nothing from these people. Nothing has changed. And it's the same people who are talking about how um, peacefully everyone waited for, for uh, Roe v. Wade to be overturned. Like, I remember all of the firebombings of, of abortion clinics, uh, the murder of abortion providers. Like, there has never been a peaceful time about it's, this, but they like to put on the rhetoric of victimhood. It, it's a terrorist movement. You know, they're like, um, you know, the Republican Army, I mean, uh, the Republican Party is like Sinn Féin, and they've got this IRA terrorist cadre that... They're brown shirts. The Christian brown shirts, you know. There, there is. There, there is very much, and, and a lot of them are, I think, very explicitly brown shirts, right? I think, I think that people get really touchy about when you call someone a fascist. Like, well, do you mean that they're actually fascists? Yes, I mean that they're a fascist. Patriot Front, Patriot Front, those are fascists. Their, their symbol the is literally flag. the American flag with a fascist on it. Yeah, have you seen the cop flag with the thin blue line and the rest of it's kind of dark? and Everywhere. 
the blue line and gone even darker. You can barely tell that it's an American flag. It's- well, there's another one that's even worse. There's a black flag. Have you seen this, that, that these uh, right-wingers that are armed, you know, that are either militia or militia-friendly, that are starting a fine? If you go on the TikTok, this, this came through my Twitter the other day. A guy had posted a whole uh, – well, he had reposted the thing from some woman that had posted all this, and she's evidently uh, – a sort of liberal to maybe progressive person over in Texas. And she had posted this of all these uh, people talking about arming up. And I mean, they're, they're pretty terrifying. A lot of them, uh, but they're flying these black, it's an American flag. Doesn't even have the blue stripe that Bruce was talking about. It's a no, black they, flag they just have very they faint stripes. This, this mm-hmm. was goes back to the civil war and it, yeah. it, it uh, symbolizes the idea of no, no, no quarter, no surrender. Have, have you seen that? I, I haven't. I haven't seen that one. I'm gonna. I'm gonna look it up. I've just seen it like the last week or two. It's a new one, and you know, you've already always got to up the ante with the fascist insignia um, because eventually their insignia becomes so uh, noxious that they have to abandon it. You know, David Duke had to take off his Nazi uh, and his uh, take off his Klan robes and put on a business suit in order to become a serious candidate. Yep. Um, but it shows how friendly, like this was, he won on George Herbert Walker Bush's campaign against Willie Horton. He just, he was the only coattails Bush had. And here's this little toadstool of a fascist down in in uh, Louisiana uh, showing that Poppy Bush kind of a racist. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, and, and I think that there's, there's something that's kind of just important to deal with the fact that if, if the Nazis support you, you should perhaps contemplate all of your life choices and then a different <laughs> one. Like maybe, maybe you're not actually a Nazi, but if the Nazis feel represented by you, that's a problem. You should Nazi be concerned. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that, that's, I think that's an excellent term for it. Um, it's like somebody I mean, said Trump may not be a fascist, but all the fascists vote for, think he is. Um, and, yes. And that's a problem. That, that's, again, it's one of those things that, like, it, it, when they think you're their man, whether or not you think they're their man, you should make other choices. Well, well and he knew he was their man. He knew he was their man because after um, one of the killings, he said they're fighting people on both sides, you know. Uh, um, the one yeah, it was, it, was after, it was after Charlottesville. It was after the uh, it was after the, the United Right rally in Charlottesville. He was saying that right. very fine people on both sides. They were very fine people on both sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and it's and they heard that, and they heard exactly what they wanted to hear from that. Well, right. also, it's, it's one of the debates. Remember, he says, you know, stand back and what is it, and stand by or something like right. that. Yeah. What I like, he has what I like to call a certain low cunning. Uh, he's able to. Um, you know, he's a man that spent his life in front of crowds. He knows how to read a crowd. Um, so uh, tell us a little more about the uh, ins and outs of uh, fascist uh, theocracy in the United States in the last, mm-hmm. you know, 20, 30 years um, <laughs> developed. So one of the things about it is I, I keep hearing the question, why, why call them Christian nationalists? Uh, why use that instead of one of the other terms like supremacist, Christo-fascist, things like that? So there, there are many flavors, and they're all interrelated, right? And this is this is the tricky part of figuring out what terms we like to use. Um, there are fascists who very actively adopt um, the kind of general ideology of 
fascism. They want a dictator where the government controls business and labor. Opposition is not permitted. Um, you know, generally pulling on a totalitarian ideology based on Mussolini or many, many others. Christian nationalism, um, I tend to think of largely as the uh, idea that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should actively work to keep it that way. And that that imprint of Christianity is the defining feature that has right. to be never forced on. First Amendment. Yes. And then the idea, the idea that there is a separation of church and state is one that they, that is distasteful. Now I find that fascinating because of course the, the you know, separation of church and state is to keep any specific church from ruling the state very much in the kind of, um, you know, no one outside of New England wanted there to be a Puritan, uh, Puritan control over the early Americas, right? People are actively concerned in the late 18th century about having a specific denomination taking over. Yeah, they kind of screwed the pooch with all that uh, witch hunting and lopping up people's ears. Absolutely. People are terrified about having more Puritans. They're also terrified of Catholics terrified and rageful. There are plenty of uh, sermons in the 18th century calling Catholics servants of the Antichrist, especially during the wars between England and France. You know, the idea of a wall of separation between governance and religion. They yeah. were, yeah. they were yes. obsessed with Masonic threats, uh, which were ludicrous, but they, you know, they, if you go and look at the popular fiction of that day, it's full mm. of, you know, Masonic kinds of conspiracies and so forth. It's just, it's ridiculous, but it's well, there. Yes. There's a Louisiana tie-in with that because, of course, before we were a territory, we were a colony first of France and of Spain. They briefly uh, France again, and um, they um, the Americans bought the colony, and a lot of the states still had state churches. If you read the First Amendment closely. It only applies to Congress, not to the states. Mm. And they, there was no intention of letting Louisiana make uh, Catholicism the state church. You know, Jefferson was kind of a First Amendment purist anyway. But, like, the first thing we did as Americans was start an Episcopal church. Yeah. There's a... Um... Stephen and I have uh, we were the first site that has the complete Earthline correspondence with Jefferson. Um, the Earthline oh, nuns, of course, cool. famous in uh, New Orleans and Louisiana. They wrote a letter to him that they were worried about, you know, Protestants stealing their stuff because that's what Protestants do, right? Uh, yeah. He wrote back and said, you know, and. I respect the work you're doing, and you will be allowed to continue without um, having your stuff stolen. You know, we're going to protect your property. You know, that's kind of the core job of the government to these uh, people of that, uh, protecting the property of white people. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. so we're going to protect your property, but there's no mention of we're going to continue giving preferred status. Like the way they made money before <laughs> Uh, the French gave them slaves in a plantation, and they were supported by that. But, you know, basically government support, and that's going away if you're going to have, you know, your operation. You've got to get your own members to support you, and you can't <laughs> the tax come around and do it for you. So, you know, it's an interesting 
Yeah, it's not a secular government in the way France was hostile to the church. It's mm. closer to a laissez-faire. You can have your church. We're not going to make people go to it, but we're not going to block people either. That kind of even-handedness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's supposed to be the, you know, and I've heard it anachronistically described as the referee on the football field or the soccer field. Uh, and it sort of is. I mean, that's a kind of a poor metaphor, but it's about the best one that people can come up with is that it's the referee on the field, making sure <laughs> that the game is played cleanly or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like that. Uh, what Christian nationalists want, of course, is to um, rig the game. That's what they call it in basketball. They want home cooking. In other words, they want a referee that will swing the swing the ball in their favor. <laughs> yes, uh, and they want it. They want it to have uh, to have armed guards to back it up. Right. Now, this is yeah. this is effectively what it is. Is that it, it wants to very much build it so that there is only one game that you're allowed to play, uh, and everyone else can quietly sit in the stands at best. And that the rules will be based on their particular understanding uh, of what Christianity means and how it can be applied to the state. And that's the part where if they were to ever to win, they'd immediately begin butchering each other. But that won't help the rest of us. We'll already be Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's one particular kind of Christianity. It's not – that's what these people don't realize that, that blindly support that. And there, there are a lot of, you know, uh, Catholics here in the United States, and particularly here in Louisiana, that support some kind of government takeover, and they don't realize – Protestantism, particularly as it developed in the United States, has a, and, and particularly conservative Protestantism, has a deep mm-hmm. abiding hatred for Roman Catholicism. Mm-hmm. I, I know people who really believe that there, you know, there are Christians and then there are Catholics, and those are two separate things. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You know that yep. that that, that uh, demon is waiting to break out of Pandora's box any time now. Except when yep. uh, my friends say that online, I say, well. In that case, you should stop listening to the Pope about abortion. You know, what is that about? You know, I'm not listening to the Pope. Where do you think that idea came from? You know, <laughs> our Southern Baptist Convention was pro-choice for about a decade after Roe came out. It was um, yep. of the, the rise of the right wing in the denomination that uh, turned it for stark. Yep. But, yeah, well, I I always love those moments where people are like, well, this is this has always been the case. Like, no, nope, has been has not been the case. You just can't reach back in the seventies. Apparently, apparently that's too distant for you. But, I mean, so this is this is the thing, right? Like in its most basic form, it's uh, I'm going to impose my vision of the past on everyone else. Okay, well, that's that's what you're going for. Um, then what happens? Right? And that's, that's where the various flavors really become important is that, okay, if your vision is that you are going to impose Christianity, what does that mean? And that's where you have all of the other possibilities, right? Christofascism feels really good as a way of describing it because we, we instinctively understand fascism as bad, but that is one of the many governing possibilities. That's not what unites the different Christian nationalist groups, not the rich version of Christianity, not which form of government afterwards, but the not just de facto, but, but very much, much the full takeover of government by Christian groups who right. impose Christianity as the governing principle under which everything else has to has to you know, deal. Well, I mean, after the bright line drawn in the early 60s by the Supreme Court, um, I'm <clears throat> old enough to remember uh, Madeline, Madeline Murray O'Hare, but she was thoroughly demonized like um man the rest of her life she was uh, the, 
the incarnation of the devil. Of course, he was really just a regular atheist, but they can't make the distinction. Anyway, yeah. um, after all these decades of a, having a pretty bright line separating church from public schools, the Supreme Court, on their way out this summer, they got lost with all the abortion issue, but they brought prayer back in. The coach can go out and pray at the center of the field, and if all the boys want to gather around and pray with him, yeah. why, who can stop him? Well, I, if I went out there and started praying to Allah, I bet they'd figure it away. Yeah, well, so there is very much that part where, of course, we, we recognize the hypocrisy of which religions are going to be allowed exactly. to have this kind of public sphere, right? And, and that's, that's an important point that like, we, sh- we should never let go of. The the other part of it is that it's not that prayer was forbidden beforehand. I mean, like I, I don't I don't know about you, but like it's not like it's not like people weren't praying in school when I went to high school. It's that yeah, it was not school mandated and coerced prayer, and that's what they've been. Brady Nutt used to say that that as long as there have been you know kids or as long no, how do you say it as long as there's been kids that's going to be prayer in schools or something to that effect, so kids are going to pray before test. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if they want to pray, they'll pray, but it should not be a state mandated. I don't want to bureaucrat in the government picking out what denomination my child is going to be taught about. Yes. Well, that's the thing. The idea the idea that a, a player is going to feel comfortable not praying on the field when the coach tell when the coach tells them to is I mean like you know we, we all we all know the people at our schools who might have who might have you know been willing to do that. That is not a large number of people who are going to uh, deal well with that kind of coercive pressure. Right, like people were already praying in schools. We know that people were already praying in schools. I mean, any place that has like a, was a fellowship of Christian athletes uh, or pray around the pole or all of these other initiatives that I remember when I was in school. Yeah, go ahead, that. Yep, those are those are student-led initiatives, though. Right, the difference is that you've, you've said that it's okay to have figures of authority push this same rhetoric, and that that feels very different. I mean, between, between that and the, um, I'm forgetting the exact details of the law, that, that the ruling in Maine about Christian schools around funding opportunities uh, for Christian uh, Christian private schools. And I, I need to, oh I need to look this back up. They've never given up on wanting money for, uh, you know, they don't want to pay for stuff themselves. They want the government to pay for it. Yeah, like, but that's, okay. that's different. That's different than when um, people want to loan for business. Um but I think the thing I, about I that posted that, about something like this today. This is about the debt forgiveness program that Biden has just implemented. And I said uh, religious hypocrites love to condemn any notion of debt relief and or forgiveness, and even more, the mildest legal implementation of it thereof. They forget conveniently and intentionally the forgiveness at the heart of all three monotheistic religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. You yep. know, they, they, they just overlook that. But it's always they can do that for themselves. I mean, Bruce track this back to a form of tribalism, but they can always do that when it's their their tribe or their people that are in need, but they won't extend the same uh, forgiveness and really the same mercy and grace to those people. Yeah, well, and, and it, it's an interesting thing because I, I love I love throwing the tradition back in their, in their face, but at, at the same time, I don't... I, I don't want you to base debt forgiveness on Christian principles because I don't think that Christianity should be what we base governance on. And so it becomes this kind of tricky thing where I love pointing out their hypocrisy, but no, I think we should do debt forgiveness because we live in a society and we shouldn't want people to suffer, not because there are parts of the Bible that say that you should either, because then you are basing government policy on exactly. Christian doctrine, and then it's still Christian nationalism, just one that seems more palatable. 
Right. Yeah. yeah we should be promoting. I keep saying to people the common good because that comes up in all of the, you know, all of the monotheistic faiths, all of the pretty much all of the Asian and African indigenous faith. But it also is this ancient idea, of, you know, going back probably before the Greeks and the Romans. Yeah. You know, the common good. Yeah. And civic virtue and all that. If we want to yeah. mandate time off for workers, we do it because workers need time off, not because they have to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You can't, that can't be what's in the bill as your reason for doing something because it totally mushes church and state together. Absolutely. Um, same thing with murder, same thing with stealing, all that. Um, now, do, a, do an ex- thought experiment with my ancient civ class where um, – we talk about whether the Ten Commandments are the basis of American law. And, uh, it was a, you know, I started doing that when Roy Moore was putting up the monument. Uh, mm. There wasn't a, a law against trolling the uh, mall for teenage girls. But anyway, <laughs> um, um, we go through and just one through ten is this in the American legal system. And you know, maybe three of them are, you know, like um, – you can't kill. Uh, we don't put people in adult, jail for adultery anymore. Um, lying under oath is still illegal. Uh, coveting is the basis of our uh, uh, capitalist uh, consumer <laughs> society. So, you know, most of them are out. You know, it's yeah. not the basis of our law. Well, and I, I always think that, that when I read people who want to apply those things, what they really want to do is that, that they have one passage of the Bible, usually a single line of Leviticus that they're really excited about, divorced from context, that they then don't want to apply any other part of Leviticus, just the one part of Leviticus. Right. Um, that's, a, that's a tendency with some people. We've seen, Bruce and I've seen that in their theology. They will base uh, not just a political idea, but a whole theology on one or two passages. Mm-hmm. That, 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 that's it. I mean, that or is, in the case of abortion, on no passages. There's nothing for them to quote. So they have to make up stuff and misquote stuff, but there is no... Isogeet, the biblical passage, you know, they read yeah. meaning into the text, the meaning that's not there. Yep. They have Absolutely. to make shit up. You know, this is what my God wants me to do. What yeah, about well, you know, the, 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 the takeaway I got the last time I read Leviticus is that God does not want you to eat owls and goes on at length about the owls you should not eat. And then I think that that makes just as much sense to base your theology as any of the other nonsense they do. Well, here in Louisiana, how many people don't eat shrimp, you know? Um, <laughs> well, or here in North Louisiana, eating catfish. Well, catfish are bottom feeders. Mm. Gonna, that, that really, I mean, honest to God, so that is going to run afoul of those dietary regulations in the Hebrew Bible. So, well, you know, they don't, I, I notice what, what and, and Bruce and I have talked about this before, and you've probably seen it in your research, they lack, these people don't just lack education to be able to interpret the scripture responsibly, yeah. but they also lack them wisdom them. and humility. They lack wisdom yeah. and humility, too. There's an arrogance about them. Mm. Uh, there's a real kind of a self-righteousness. I mean, do you find that? Uh, in terms of doing your research and, you know, listening to some of their comments on TV and in social media? Well, I, I think for, for me, I think that we love the idea that they're ignorant uh, and that this is a product of ignorance that could be fixed with education and knowledge. And I, I don't think they're ignorant. I think they know exactly what they're doing, exactly what they're saying, and they don't care. They're building, they're building a religion from the ground up based on their prejudices that happen to it, except the trappings of Christianity. And Christianity has unfortunately always provided 
examples and theologies and legends to support that. Right. Um, but I, I think this is one of the big problems of Christian nationalism. We really like to point out the idea that it's incompatible with the Bible. So what? They don't care. You, you, can't, you can't get them on hypocrisy because the hypocrisy means literally nothing to them. This does not phase them at all. They are uninterested. They are unworried. They are unbothered. None of this burdens them. They have found a mix of religious rhetoric and belief and structure to latch onto an ultranationalist framework, and nothing will dislodge them from that. Um, and I, wish, I wish it could, right? I wish, I wish you could make a religious argument and convince them not to be this way, but I think we spend a lot of time acting as if they simply don't know their Bible, as opposed to knowing their Bible and not caring, the, which I think is more right, dangerous. Uh, read, I would urge you to read uh, this guy that was up at the Divinity School before I was, Chris Hedges. Uh, he wrote this book called American Fascists, and he points out that, and he doesn't have a New Testament background, frankly, Bruce has, but he's got enough background to understand the people in the pews don't know the Bible at all. Mm. It's the and really you have to separate them from the clergy. The laity yeah. don't know the scripture. The, the the clergy do, but it's a certain interpretation of the scripture that is colored by what we're talking about by Christian nationalism, uh, by Christo Christo fascism, uh, by the yeah. Stern Father model, etc. And so he, 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 for example, wanted to talk with people he interviewed for his book about theology. They couldn't even cite passages out of the scripture. They had mm. very thick passages <clears throat> that line up with right wing ideology and right wing talking points. And that's what that's in other words, they, they they were basically like a like a polyparrot that would, you know, mm. repeat back to you what you had said to the parrot. Well that's what they were doing. They were parroting everything, you know, that their that their thought leaders and their pastors and their so called theologians had said, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I was going to ask where this stuff comes from because I guess it comes from certain passages of the Bible, but certainly it's not the dominant theme in the New Testament, except for the book of Revelation. Um, and in Catholicism, at least you have the excuse of continued revelation through, you know, the theologians and the Pope and that kind of stuff. But uh, these Bible thumpers, I just don't, you know, you start trying to track down where this idea comes from. It's not from the Bible. It's got to be from somewhere else. Like I say, with abortion, they're so adamant, you're going to hell, you're a baby killer. I, I've, I've started to believe, I just found out the other day, that's an old uh, anti-Jewish, what they call the blood libel that Jews yep. use. And so the woman goes to the doctor and gets her the white man's baby, and the Jew doctor eats it. I don't know, is that where it comes from? It's, it's very suspiciously overlapping, you know? Well, I tend to think that um, a huge host of our contemporary problems and ills and almost all of our conspiracy theories at the roots are uh, connected to violent conspiracy theories against Judaism. Uh, and I think it's really important to, to just start from recognizing that. It as, always you know, comes back to uh, Judaism, right? Yeah, it is. It is the, the, fun, the fundamental problem of contemporary Christianity is that anti-Jewish sentiment has become bedrock. And because right. we don't we don't root it out, it remains intact and and a really important part of so a lot I of think stories, I would, a lot of legends, a lot of plays, uh, and almost all of our conspiracy theories. I think I would be uh, justifying not just calling them fascists, but neo Nazis, because uh, once you get into the anti Semitism, that's that's full Nazi. Um, well, the pro the problem is is that uh, anti anti Semitism is so bedrock in so many things that. Calling them neo-Nazis is tricky because 
what separates out a neo-Nazi, if anti-Semitism is what you use to separate out neo-Nazis from other groups, you, everyone's a Nazi. Um, and yeah, well, pre- yeah, they, they were basically all the... I mean, they were anti... I mean, my dad and I, I've told Bruce this here recently, my dad was a double amputee, and so one night we were watching, he had waked up to take his pain medicine because he was hurting really bad in his legs, and so he was watching this doggone video. That was, he was sitting there appalled in his bed watching this thing. It was a, a treatment. It was a documentary treatment of the Nazis and their policies against and basically pogroms against uh, disabled people in, in Germany <laughs> yeah. when they went up to World War II. And they would, they would – one of the things they did, they had a lot of film footage, you know, that was uh, – retrieved from the Nazi archives to show this, that they would shoot those people from below so that the lighting would, you know, project upward off the face so that the disabled people, whether they were, you know, sufferers of Down syndrome or, you know, um, in any sort of developmental delays, et cetera, they would look demonic and look monstrous. And the Nazi yeah. filmmakers would shoot in this way on purpose in order to portray that sort of image to the people. Well, that's a hop, skip, and a jump away from if you portray them, you know, you start off by using words against them or, or images against them to make them look monstrous, and it's only a hop, skip, and a goose step away, as I say, to exacting violence and possibly, you know, a leap of violence against the person, i.e. killing them. Oh, absolutely. Um, they also, the Nazis also attacked the LGBTQIA community. Yeah. Yeah. In Germany, and burned their books, which came back when we started uh, pulling books about about um, gay, lesbian, transgender experiences uh, in libraries. Yep, the as well. And and that yeah, violence I mean, continues, right? That yeah, violence continues in Europe. And so, and this is this is the problem, right? None none of this is new. And you know that's what they would say, and of course, um, that's kind of what they're saying still. You know, there's. I don't know if you remember when uh, some Trump doctor started uh, giving forced hysterectomies to um, migrant women that had been rounded up and put in these uh, concentration camps. But Oh, um, yeah. That's full of Nazi shit going on there when you start with the medical experiments in concentration camps. Yeah, but I mean, and, and the, the problem is that that's also very American. And we okay. forget how much how much of the kind of eugenics laws and ideas get adopted from American doctors um, really early but on. So, came here to find his uh, laws about uh, you know anti-Semitism. He came to the South. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and bring this back to. I mean, we started in La Plata. Let's let's move on to Kirksville now. Harry Laughlin, who uh, graduated from the first district normal school, what is now Trinity University in Kirksville, Missouri. Uh, then got his uh, Doctor of Science from Princeton Field of Cytology, is the uh, big eugenics record office person. And his, uh, he, was, he was given honorary degrees. Um, I mean, the, the law for the prevention of her- hereditarily diseased offspring passed by the Reichstag in 1933 was based on Laughlin's model. Right. And the right. first year, between 30,000 and 80,000 persons were sterilized. His house in Kurtzville, Missouri, was my preschool. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, that was, I mean, finding that out when I was an adult was a weird, weird moment. Why did they not tear it down? Well, you know, it's a, histor- it's a historic building, and they, they was on campus, and they tried to figure out something to do with it, and that was, uh, they yeah. They repurposed that. it to put it in quotes. <laughs> Ooh, well, here yeah. in New Orleans, Madeline Lee Laurie's house was later a girls' school, so, you know, they just, we just <laughs> they keep use a terrible using... pun, everything Nazi is new again, right? 
Yeah. Well, well it's I mean, not like America doesn't have its own Nazi tradition. I mean, you may want to call it something else, but you know, it's pretty Nazi. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, like, listen, we also we also have after the war actual Nazis, I and mean, George Rockwell Lincoln uh, and the American Nazi Party it doesn't take long to pop up. Um, you know, we we can talk about we can talk about Huey Long, right? Yeah. He, he might have a different ideology, but we have we have our own uh, we have our own fascists. Uh, in the 30s, I mean, Trump, Father Coughlin is certainly spreading Nazi-ish ideas. The American First Movement, um, well, even before it becomes actively infiltrated by Nazi sympathizers, already has its own issues. I mean, you know, uh, T.S. Eliot was, was a notorious apologist for Mussolini. I mean, T.S. Eliot and also Ezra Pound, and he was brought up, you know, he was going to be tried for treason and possibly executed as a traitor. Uh, yep. Brown was. I mean, and and they decided to say it was yeah, crazy. I mean, yeah, that was kind of a bad look, you know, <laughs> to be putting one of your poets to death. But I mean, really, he was he was but one of Huey, considered for execution. One of Huey Long's biggest supporter and his successor to the um, uh, Share Our Wealth Party or uh, clubs was a <laughs> Gerald R. K. Smith, who went on to become a extreme. A Nazi file, you know, he and he kept mm. doing that for decades. But he had started off in that kind of progressive. It's like the Bernie Trump voter, you know. There were because both were outsiders. Um, and when Bernie, uh, when he was defeated, some people moved over to Trump instead of over to Hillary because they weren't. They were more about the outsider status. Mm. Um, well, I, yeah. I, I think of it as the quintessential Tulsi Gabbard supporter. Where uh, you you were excited about the homophobia and the Assad support uh, along the way, right? Well, Huey didn't have the uh, you know he didn't play up racism the the way other Southern demagogues did, but uh, for somebody like Smith, it was easy to tack it in after Huey was gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, so much so much of Huey Long's thing was uh, was was very Trumpian in that you know the rules do not apply to me; the rules are what I say they are, and I will do literally whatever I want, and you can't stop me. Um, which has its own its own interesting flavors in there, but once you once you have that model, once you have that model, you can do all kinds of things. Um, well, and he had really solid majorities backing him, which enabled him to go out and do stuff that Trump never had a majority once. Uh, so no. that was something of a you know not too much of a check on what he tried to do, but uh, when the you know, there were plenty of people that were opposed to it as well as in line with it. I think that's what saved us from fascism this go around was. Uh, I wanna go I wanna go back to one of your first statements about the the media presence of these Christo fascists. And so we see them, you know, on T V also on streaming T V on these various services. Uh I wouldn't be surprised and maybe you can kind of elaborate on this, but I mean, obviously, they have podcasts like Bruce and I. Albeit, you know, we're, you know, we're not doing Nazism and so forth and so on. But I mean, um, I'm wondering where all do they recruit besides the online type places? I mean, do they have any Roku channels at all or any anything like well, that? I mean, you know, I, I think about the fact that we we were all people were worried that Fox News had, had become so far right wing that it was really dangerous. And I, I think places like Tucker Carlson are genuinely dangerous shows. But there are further right things. Um, one American News Network yeah. uh, is is very much worse. There are media sites that push kind of um, electoral lies. I mean, the, the the Federalist is a web magazine that um, has a very far right bent, and there are a number of these. Um, 
you know, there are plenty, there are plenty of your more traditional venues that are still spreading these kinds of ideas. I mean, the big lie has become so mainstream in all of the kind of most dangerous ways that it, it no longer feels new and worth discussion because it has simply become part of, of everyday rhetoric. Um, and I think, unfortunately, polls support the idea that people really do think that the 2020 election was stolen in, in staggeringly large numbers. The thing for me is that with the way we conceptualize, I, I think people who are a little bit older, I mean, like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a millennial. I'm not even necessarily a particularly old millennial. But the Internet that I grew up with and the Internet that is dominant now are uh-huh. actually, they're different places, right? Media has changed. Very started quickly. downloading a picture and came back an hour later to see if it was done. Yeah, I mean, I remember, I remember, you know, the, the dial tone sound still like haunts my nightmares, and then like you're trying to do something, if someone picked up the phone, that's it, it's over. Oh my you god, you lost whatever you're trying to pick up, right? I mean, like I, I remember this very well, and and you know, kids today, which is fun to say, kids today have no idea what that experience is like. But it's also <laughs> so much more visual heavy. Right, there's so many more, it's so much more video heavy, really, um, that I think that makes a really big difference in the way that we, we have to talk about and conceptualize how they interact with, with kind of the dynamic of, of media. We put it. I did a book last night, um, Guide to Old New Orleans by Coleman, that um, it's long and it had a lot of uh, images. The whole thing takes 60 megabytes, which is just unreal. But, you know, I was thinking, well, people can download it if they want to these days because, you know, what's data anymore? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it's funny how quickly that, that happens, right? Like, it just it, it isn't the same world that we lived in at all. On the original Internet I, that I had back in the 90s, it would have taken a month to download all that stuff. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and so I think the other thing is that, you know, we, we lived in the Internet when there wasn't a ton on it, right? And the places that you could go and find stuff on the Internet were, were very kind of normal places. There weren't, there weren't like, you know, I, I remember when, like, AOL was still, like, a thing that people no would do. To, to, yeah. Well, no dark web and like even relatively easy places where you can find things to get radicalized on, right? So you, you, you know, Reddit quit, I mean, Reddit began banning the most toxic channels and then they moved over to 4chan and 8 which are based, uh, I mean, based in other countries so that they don't have to listen to American law. I mean, and you get really horrific content that becomes normalized on these sites. And like it moves you have, to the right-wing uh, media universe. Yes. Um, and, and there's so much kind of catching up and uh, trying to get those people to pay attention to them, right? I mean, it's, it's trying to draw those messages in and in trying to chase those, kind of, uh, those kinds of demographics. You end up mainstreaming really, really horrific ideas. Um, and you think like a great replacement theory and stuff like that gets, gets brought into discourse in ways that should be really, really scary. Oh, my um, God. I, a few months ago, I looked up something about World War II. I wanted to watch a documentary about some particular thing. For the next six weeks, I was bombarded with all this uh, Nazi propaganda, you know, just the worst stuff on YouTube because I'd watched one video about World War II. Yeah, well, and the, the algorithms want you to stay right. on and keep watching. And what they've discovered is that the easiest way to get you to stay on and keep watching is to push far-right content on you. 
escalate. Yeah, and it usually, I, I was hearing something on one of the shows that Bruce and I follow, it was either Sam Cedar or some show like that, that what they do, they start off with something fairly innocuous, like Bruce had, you know, gotten for, for his uh, documentary, uh, viewing pleasure or whatever, and they move from that very quickly to stuff that gets progressively more outrageous or incendiary. Yep. A lot of cases, it's actually incendiary stuff. Yeah. Well, and it's the it's the not so slow trickle into mainlining um, fascist rhetoric into your into yep. your regular feed. And that's and that you know that is the kind of thing that again should concern us all, but it is simply the algorithm pushes you very quickly into that kind of material. And that's worrisome, right? I mean, and the way people are radicalized online, and the fact that we're all online all the time, it took me a surprisingly long time to get a smartphone, but I'm, I'm now as hooked on it as, as anyone else. And it means that we are constantly online. And so pushing things online has a lot more of an impact than it did uh, I mean, even before we had smartphones. Right, right. I mean, you teach... Um how many times have you walked into class with, like, all your students are either standing in the hall or they're already in there and nobody is making eye contact because every single one of them is looking at their phone? Yes. Well, and, and let's, not, let's just not just say it's my students. How many times have I walked into the classroom on my phone looking oh. down until I re- remember that, oh, wait, I'm an adult and I need to stop doing this? But, you know, these kids should be meeting their future spouse. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, listen, there, there's an app for that now, as with everything else. Um, <laughs> again, I mean, I, you know, I, uh, I'm, not, I'm not old, but I'm certainly not young anymore, and things like that feel weird to me. Um, but that's, that's, that's the world that exists now, and it is a very different reality than I grew up in. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it is more, it is radically different even, I, I would say, in, in its substance from the world that, that the printing press created in the 1450s, you know, movable type. I mean, that changed yeah. the world, but I think this is changing the world in, in radically different ways. Yeah. Uh, that are and we're always working on catching up to that. Terrifying. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Our, our, not only our understanding of it, but really our moral response to it and ethical response to it, too. Yes. So um, we've got the diagnosis and what do you think the prescription is, or is there anything that you can think mm. Well, so I, I'm, I make a better, I make a better uh, doomsayer than I do uh, a healer of ills. Um, I, I will say that one of the things is that recognizing what you're dealing with is a really important part of moving forward. Pretending this isn't happening isn't a viable strategy, and recognizing the genuine danger, but not 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 just to, to kind of your most common fellow travelers, but the kind of broader danger that it poses is important because you defeat it. Um, I mean, if you defeat it, right? And I'm hopeful that we'll defeat it. But if you defeat it, you defeat it through uh, coalitions and through denying them power, right? <laughs> you defeat them by remembering that they are, in fact, a minority group wanting to instill minority rule and stopping right. them from achieving it at all costs. Right. Yeah, I, I have noticed. Trump changed the way the mainstream media covers. You know, like it's not uncommon to hear him talking about Trump's big lie. You know that. Uh, yes. He, he really won the election. They call it the big lie right there on the TV and everything. You know, for all my adult memory, it was always both sides, isn't it? Really, both sides. 
Yeah. Well, that's an important change, right? That's a really like that feels like a shift change that you can even call something as as clearly a lie as the yeah. lie a lie. That feels good. That shouldn't feel good. That should never have been an issue. But like, thank God, thank God we've gotten to that point. Exactly. Oh my goodness. What the, standard, feel, the standard is so low. Do you feel that? And this will go directly to the prescription Bruce is talking about. Do you feel that? Uh, Bruce and I have felt this way for the whole time, and finally people are admitting this, that if we're not dealing with cult, a cult, we're dealing with a quasi-cult? No, you know, so the thing about cult is that cult is a political designation, not a religious one. Um, That's what I said, because, a, quasi, a quasi-cult. Yeah, like yeah. Well, no, I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it's not not religious. It's not not religious. I, I think the problem is that this is this is one of many strands that exists within Christianity that has always existed within Christianity, and I think that sometimes we, we like to talk about how these are you know the, the no true gospel fallacy gets applied to Christianity an awful lot that these are not really Christians, but actually they are. They very much are. It's just we were at least ha- hoping that the discourse was moving past this, and we were wrong. And with and, discovered history never really moves forward. No. Goes back and forth. Yeah. So this, is, this is a continuing battle, right? And, and I think the thing to remember is that since it's a continuing battle, let's look at the last time we had this fight, right? How do you crush the second clan? You have to put your boot on the neck. Uh, you, have to put, you, you do. You have to put your boot on their neck, and you have to make it something that they cannot be without real consequences. Um, unfortunately, you know, the, the, you know, you, you need a new civil rights act, and then you need to enforce it, and you need to enforce it with force of law and with national guard if you have to, and but, people choke on it, and then you do the next step, and you keep doing the next step, and you don't let up. Enough states have passed the ERA, and where are the Democrats? Like, what the fuck are they not like? It should be in the Constitution by now. We've got to just ratify it yep. in the Congress. And, you know, I don't think the president even has to sign it. And we're, you know, got this great opportunity to gin up our yep. uh, base. And we're just, nobody, I haven't heard anybody talking about it. Well, I think, I think there are questions about whether or not you can do it. And I think we also have to ask, is there going to be some, because we have, we have only the barest majority, only when the vice president votes to, uh, votes to agree with it. It becomes very, very tricky unless you can get more Democratic senators who are willing to make radical changes, right? So you start in November by getting right, more people to, uh, in office, and, and then you have to. Well, that's the thing, right? And you need you need to not have to rely on Cinema Mansion for that. Um, I need to make DC and Puerto Rico states so it can get some more Democratic representation. Uh, see, here's the thing I find interesting. I wonder, I wonder if you would have a uh, Democratic uh, representation if you put both in. But I think that they, I think they should be states anyway if they want it. But I think it's interesting that we, we assume that that's what would happen. D.C. I feel pretty confident about. Puerto Rico I think would be, would be an interesting because study. Voters, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, thing, the thing for me is that, you know, if you could figure out a way to uh, really, I mean, open up voting rights. Right? Isn't that isn't that the age-old struggle that the minoritarian po- uh, position is that only people like them should be allowed to vote? Some of them are saying it out loud again. Um, Matt Walsh and Jesse Kelly and people like that are being very explicit. They don't think that people should have the right to vote. Um, well, and I think we ought to drop the voting age to, if not 16, yep. 17, really. Uh, that, you know, I think the state of Louisiana can become legally emancipated at 16, and in a lot of those states too, those kids ought to be able, able to vote. Quite frankly. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I think the, I think that. 
this is one of those things that you open up the voting pool and you make it easier to vote and you really push for more representation and then you see what happens. But there's also a reason why so many of these, why so many of these people are trying to stop that. Oh, yeah. If you can force a 10-year-old girl to bear a baby, then she should be able to vote, you know? Yeah, yes. I, I have no feelings on that. Well, there's so, a new book out, too. Uh, I mean, I think it's just been released, and I listened to the guy's talk on Ralph Nader's show, um, E.J. Dion, talking about uh, requiring voting, as they do in some countries like Australia. Yeah. And well, I mean, make, it, the, make it a national holiday and then and then make it so that everyone can vote and then require it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, now, it doesn't mean that you have to vote for one of the candidates. Because then I think he also suggests you could even put in something like none of the above or put in a write-in candidate or whatever. But the point is yeah. you, part it, you, you require it as part of your civic duty. And somebody was trying to argue with me online saying, well, you can't do that because of us and such. And I'd say, well, we require people to do other things like serve on a jury. So we can require people to vote. That's part of your democratic responsibility as a citizen. Absolutely. I mean, men have to register for selected service, but but you all yeah. aren't going to require them to vote. Okay, well, says what you value. Well, I see we've been going a little over an hour. Have we left off anything you'd like to talk about? Um, um, you know, I, I just like to end because I write about such bleak things and I talk about such bleak things. I think it's always too important to end on a note of hope. Yeah, I think that that that's really that that's really a fundamental thing because the, the despair that nothing can change, that nothing will get better, that history just repeats itself, and that we'll always be in the bleakest of all times is a very powerful tool by fascists to maintain power. That this is simply the way it is, and nothing can ever change, and nothing can ever get better. And we have infinite examples of people being the worst people. We can always find examples of the most malicious and cruel examples of humanity, and many of them are pundits, uh, and we can, you know, we can always find the worst. But you can also find examples of people who sacrifice everything for perfect strangers to save lives. Anytime you have a story about a child who's getting swept away in a river, some stranger throws their body into the river to try to pull them out. Every time that there is a house fire, someone runs in to try to rescue them. Right. Things can change. In other words, you're Things not can get them better. You're not a fatalist. <laughs> no, I'm not a fatalist. I'm very much not a fatalist. I don't think I don't think that the world requires everything to be bad. I think that there is always the capacity for hope and for change. Um, my entire life, things have been going in cycles, and and the world that I thought I was going to live in has ended, and we have built a new one. And sometimes those worlds are better, and sometimes those worlds are worse. But that that particular world is going to end, and we have the power to shift and to change and to make it better. Do you know, you know the work of Theodore Parker, um, my, my favorite 19th century uh, preacher? Was he a Unitarian or am I wrong? Yes, you are absolutely right. Um, he was a Unitarian. He was a transcendentalist. Um, he was also one of the secret six who uh, funded John Brown. And I think he is, we had some first editions of his books. And I, I was a student clerk in the Harvard Divinity Library, so I would go get books for professors and also other students, particularly doctoral students like like Bruce would have been. And mm. yeah, I mean, because I, I was just doing a master's, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember well, uh, yeah, my little crummy master's. <laughs> but no, I mean, uh, yeah, I think we had some first editions of his stuff that I ended up I either shelved or maybe a friend of mine or two shelved, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be amazing. Um, Peter Parker is one of my, you know, I, I don't think it's, it's healthy to have historical heroes, but he's one of mine anyway. 
And uh, the, the, the quote that um, Obama liked to use via Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Theodore Parker, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. My eye reaches but little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by the experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience. And from what I'm, I see, I am sure it bends towards justice. And I think that the way that we tend to think about that is that things will simply get that way. Theodore Parker never waited for the universe, for that moral arm to bend towards justice. He reached out with both hands and he bent it himself. Well, I, don't, I think that, And that's what we have to do. Yeah, I think that was probably the message is that uh, I, I kind of like Nation of Islam, Obama, by Michael Brooks. On, uh, he would say, um, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards Sharia. <laughs> 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 uh, both of those are true, right? Um, mm. but so who wins? The, the ones that get organized the best and fight the hardest. Yeah. Well, and this is the thing. He, he believes in fighting. Um, Parker, Parker started moving very quickly to um, – he, he formed the Boston Vigilance Committee which refused to assist with the recovery of uh, fugitive enslaved people. He helped hide them. They uh, smuggled people out of Boston away from, uh, from slave catchers. This is the kind of stuff that Parker believed in. Um, I think that that's, that's the kind of attitude we should take forward, is that, you know, if we want a better world, we have to fight for it. Well, and, and then you keep fighting. There's already developing in the wake of... Um the repeal of Roe and Underground Railroad for pregnant women to get abortions modeled on the old slave Underground Railroad. Oh, and I think, I think, you know, the fact that the fact that so many people are willing to organize and march and vote and, you know, do, do whatever, whatever you have to, to build a fairer and more just society. Um, I think, I think is one of the things that it, it might not feel hopeful, but it is hopeful. Right, that people people are paying attention to the injustices that exist and are organizing and marching and moving to do something about it. That is hopeful. That gives me hope for the future and should give all of us hope. Oh, for the you know, the the great Lutheran theologian uh, <clears throat> and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer gave his life in that cause. You know, he became yeah. involved eventually in the last Hitler assassination plot, and he knew what could happen were he to be, and he wasn't even a, you know, one of the ringleaders. He was on the periphery of the thing as a double agent, essentially smuggling information back and forth between Nazi Germany and the Allies. But yep. he was caught up in that when his, you know, his name was exposed in a big kind of a list of all the, all the participants. And he wound up with his brother-in-law and about two or 300 other people being executed right at the tail end of World War II. But he said yep. that about Hitler and the Nazis, and I can't quote him exactly, and certainly can't quote the German since I don't read German, but he said that when you see a wolf in the streets, you must stop the wolf. And he also said, you know, that you must drive a, 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 a stake into the spokes of the wheel to stop it. When that yeah. cart is on the loose and it's running through the streets, well, you, you must drive that stake into that into those spokes. Well, I know. Literally, you have to be the, involved, you know. The yeah. night that Trump got elected, I was super depressed. I didn't sleep all night and finally got a little nap about seven in the morning and then went and taught class. It was so horrible. And the first yeah. time I felt better, Stephen and I, the day after Trump got inaugurated, drove to Shreveport and uh, went to the, um, the, the women's The, the first women's march, yeah. <laughs> Probably 1,500 people there. And there were a lot more leftists in North Louisiana than I ever thought. Um, yeah. 
Well, and, and if you know where Shreveport is on the map, where it sits on I-20, it's almost in Texas, but it's kind yeah. of far from Arkansas. It's about 40, between 40 and 50 miles south of the Arkansas border. So we know for a fact there was a bus that came over, I think, from maybe Marshall or Longview. I think there was another bus that came down from Texarkana, and I suspect there were some people coming down from southeast Oklahoma. I can't prove that one, but I know from three states. They were coming from this three-state area for sure. Yeah. So well, um, these, are, these are the things that give me hope for the future, right? People, people. If you don't give up and you keep fighting, things can change for the better. Yeah, the day uh, that the uh, Supreme Court decision came down, her and I were on a layover in uh, Washington D.C. from our uh, vacation. <laughs> in the hotel room, looking up um, what, trying to figure out what museum we wanted to go to. And mm. He wasn't too thrilled about any museum. He was a teenager. <laughs> so the came on. It just happened, and um, the Supreme Court has overruled Roe v. Wade, which is terrible. You know, very distressing. Yeah. But I said, Oh my gosh, Kurt, that's just a few miles from us. This protest they're showing me says. Does this mean we don't have to go to a museum? (laughs) 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 Mount up and ride, and we did. And, you know, it's terribly distressing still, but it's amazing. And I think Republicans have, even Democrats, have way underestimated just how brassed off women are at this. You know, I don't think this is, it looks like, you know, these invisible waves that, um, you know, the, the polls aren't showing, but then when the uh, when there's a chance to vote against a Republican or against abortion, there's this tide that just comes out of nowhere seemingly. But, you know, they, yep. they're angry. They may be keeping their mouths shut because they can't tell their husband or their preacher or their best friend, but they are really pissed off. And that's good news for democracy, right? Yes, well, I mean, you, you saw you saw the the vote in Kansas shortly thereafter. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, that's where you start seeing that this is this is real and it is widespread and it it has meaning in the ballot box. Uh, and that's again, it's it's the stuff that gives me hope for the future. Right, <laughs> they go too far in the. That's what what you're what you're saying. It sounds very much like one of my heroes, Howard Zinn, because he said that repeatedly. And interviews, but also in his books. And I've got probably close to a dozen of his books. And he said that often that, you know, people ask him, Dr. Zen, uh, why are you not a pessimist? And he said, I can't be. He, you know, he said, remember, I've studied history. And he said, yes, there have been horrible events in history, like the Holocaust, like the Armenian genocide. And he starts reeling off these things. And he said, there have also been moments where people have stood up for the right, they've stood up for justice, they've stood up for equality, they've stood up for freedom. Yeah. So he's, I can't be a pessimist. Yeah. I can't be a pessimist. Start to think you can change things, then you change things, you know? Yes. Well, thank That's, you so much for coming on our podcast. Yeah, we appreciate it. Yeah, yeah thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and, you know, this is a nationwide problem, but really super applies to Louisiana. <laughs> um there are no legal abortions anymore in Louisiana, and um, the closest ones in Southern Illinois, I think, where you can go. Oh, gosh. Until, until the boats get started on the Gulf, there's going to be some, some ships was, down there. I think <coughs> that will, you know, be offering women abortions. So 
Yeah. It was just yeah, yeah. news this week that a woman with a headless baby in Baton Rouge is being forced to carry it to term or else leave the state because it has a heartbeat. So, yeah, yeah neo uh, Christo fascism or whatever you want to call it, Christian nationalism, it's here. Um, yeah. And uh, it's going to be hard to rule out, but if we don't think we can, we definitely won't. We've got to get active. We've got two congressional seats that are Republicans running unopposed. No Democrats down the money to try. And this is this could be a real wave, you know, but we can't win it because we're not in it. So you know we have to fight for every election, no matter even if you lose. Yeah, yeah. Run. It matters. Well thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you guys so much. This has been an absolute pleasure and you know, finger fingers crossed for us all. Well, and keep doing the work that you do. It's very necessary work. Right. And uh, check out that book by Jewett. He wrote, he wrote the same book about five times. So any yeah, the of the Captain America Complex, is that one of them, Bruce? Yeah, American Monomyth, and then he's written a bunch. But the American Monomyth was his most scholarly version. The rest of it is pop culture, but it's all really good stuff. Oh, excellent. I'll definitely get my hands on it. I'm looking forward to it. You take care. Yeah, take care. I will. You too. Thank you very much. Yeah, Bye. you too. Bye-bye. Bye. I want to thank Thomas for coming on our podcast and uh, sharing his insights with us. It's kind of a noxious type of uh, religious uh, extremism that certainly has had its way in our state for a very long time. Um, and It's very destructive, you know, yeah, it's deeply destructive. If you're going to successfully fight this stuff, first you have to understand it. And people like that and Robert Jewett, they've uh, you know kind of swam they've swum through the sewer, so we don't have to <laughs> come back <laughs> with information on how these people think and talk and act, you know, and uh, it's pretty grim when you think about it. But it's better to know this stuff than to be blindsided when they Exactly, exactly. I mean, and they've only got so many different ways to say, you know, to make their spell, really. What well, what they have been able to do today is harness particularly, they've got access to lots more money today with these right-wing groups like the Mercers and the Cokes, but they also have a much, much wider reach and a much more immediate reach through mass media, and particularly through the, you know, contemporary electronic media, like social media, you know, a broadcast media, whether it's either TV, like traditional TV or streaming media and that kind of thing. So well, their reach is a lot bigger. If we don't educate ourselves about them, then we'll be caught flat-footed when they take over our school board and fire a bunch of teachers or when they take over the library uh, board and uh, burn a bunch of books and lay off a bunch of librarians. And, you know, there's these things they come after generation after generation, uh, either, you know, people who are public servants and therefore easy to attack and also maybe media uh you know like there's always some kind of moral panic about oh the cursing and the uh, rap songs and uh, uh oh the uh, drag queen drag queen story hour too right right that's their freak out right now and so uh, i think it's entirely predictable to know that that was going to blow up <laughs> yeah well it's, it's like i keep telling my friend that had come up here for for, for the christmas holiday we can talk about the minutiae of this all we want to, but we need to talk about really and understand and really know it kind of backwards and forwards, just what Thomas has studied, which is a lot of the philosophy and the history of what's going on. Yeah. And then the rest of it, it's like 
it's, it's basically like, you know, putting down the superstructure for a building. The building mm -hmm. may take its, you know, it may, it will, it will take the, the shape that the, you know, builder has, has desired through the architect and so forth and the contractor. But, you know, you think about it, the building is still a building and it's going to well, have to have a superstructure to support it. Sif Glass calls them the uh, reprogrammable meat puppets, which, uh, you know, if today we're at war with Eurasia and tomorrow we're at war with East Asia and always have right. that. It's from 1984. The message changes and it looks like something totally different, but it's not. Because what we're talking about is the structure of how they think and exactly. the way they disseminate uh, misinformation, uh, and that's always the same. They just yeah. The, 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 like I keep comparing it to, it's like I mean, water. And if you think about their ideology as water, water takes the shape of the vessel into which it's formed. So if you have a, a cylindrical type pitcher, for example, like like we did, we you know you put water in the pitcher to keep it cool in, in the in the refrigerator. Instead of having to go put ice in it, well, you keep it cool in the refrigerator, then you just pour yourself a glass when you want it. Or a, a really curious and kind of unique picture that we had from one of my cousin's great aunts uh, through his dad. Uh, when she died, we got this picture because it was my mom liked it. It was unique. It was, like, of all things, a square-shaped, really a rectangular-shaped uh, picture, which is kind of bizarre, you know? Well, and it, it's perfect for putting against the wall of a, of a fridge, but it, the water yeah. looks square, but it's, it's a square picture, you see. The, if you look back over the last few years, what you'll see is uh, immediately after an election, all the things they were hyperventilating about disappeared. There's no more uh, a caravan for the country. Uh, uh, there's the, the worry about this and that dissipates. And then I guess maybe after New Year's the next year, they start running out stuff. And it's like A-B testing, like they're saying, What's yeah. going to uh, stick and what's not? So uh, one go round, oh, they're freaking out over a bummer's uh, brown suit. And another time, uh, Mr. Potato Head uh, is no longer a Mr. So <gasps> point of Potato Head. They're apoplectic about this. Yeah, you know, but I think they must sit around with a with a Frank Luntz type character strategizing this. Well, you know. It's just, they, you know, that didn't catch. Nobody cared. So they kept running through, oh, green eggs in hell. No, nobody cared. Uh, then they find, okay, well, uh, inflation is working for us. But they, it's not smart on their part. It's just they push each thing through the, the system and see what happens to come out. And when they find something that works and that catches hold, crime, inflation, uh, well, then that's all you hear from there out. So that, yeah, it's, it's like the Pavlovian response, you know, and they, yes, yes. they wind up, yeah, they ring the bell and the dog sal or the, you know, the scientists ring, the behaviorist rings the bell and the dog salivates. Yeah, and so it's, 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 it's always associated with the food until they pull the food away and ring the bell, but the dog still salivates. It's a, the classic condition response. Well, and yeah, the, and these, um, you know, whatever message of the week, drag queen this week, sex in books next week, uh, um, I don't know, whether, like I say, potato head the week after that. And they oh, look like uh, a bunch of different stuff, but it's just really a bunch of different strategies. It's different, itera it's, yeah, it's different iterations of the same yeah. stuff. But they're all coming from the same speakers, from the same channels, from radio, TV, podcasts. You know, it's it's just they're testing out what's going to work. Um, I, when you called and you know sent me the text about let's record right now instead of later, and I, as I was talking with my friend on the phone, she was literally, it's, this is bizarre, uh, not knowing we were about to do this particular, you know, uh, 
intro and outro, she was talking with me about a pretty infamous case. I think it's written up in some broadcast history. It's fairly recent, uh, but this American Family Radio or somebody, but anyhow, American Family Institute, but it was this right-wing bunch out of Mississippi, that right-wing Methodist over there, Don Wildman. Uh, some of his people masked up, and they came in and tried to take over the NPR affiliate in Lake Charles. Yeah, so it's right here in the state. I mean, they tried to take it over. Just like so, a protest, or did they buy it, or how are they going to do that? She didn't get to, that. Was about the time that you sent your text through, so I had to get off. <laughs> so it's like to be continued. But yeah, she was looking, going to look for me. Yeah, she was going to look for me a link. You know, to find some write-ups about it online, but yeah, I mean, they showed up. Take I, it sounded like they were, yeah, they're going to try to buy it out, but they're going to take it over. Yep. Uh, never mind that again. It's it's serving like it's you know NPR is a not-for-profit agency. Granted, it does take some corporate dollars, but it's not a liberal entity like these people think. I mean, they take money from the Koch Foundation, you know, just like just like public broadcasting does. They're the most even-handed. You know, this guy said this. This guy said that. You know. It's a little old after a while. Oh, for the Louisiana Anthology, <laughs> I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. We certainly want to do thank uh, Thomas for joining us this week. Uh, do do read his research because it is very timely, and it really is the kind of research that does not go away. Uh, books like Theocracy in the USA, again, as Bruce said, you know, we are you know forewarned as forearmed, so to speak. Do, do read this and, and get familiar with what he's describing what, what really what he's analyzing in his particular history because we are seeing this come back and really as i've said online in, in the social media you know fascism is on the march so you need to know where it's marching and if you want to know where it's marching read thomas's book so again thank you thomas for joining us we also want to thank all of you for listening in and we hope that you'll join us for next week's edition of the louisiana anthology podcast bye for now <laughs>